it's been an amazing day and I'm, I'm even more in, um, in touch with the fact that uh, this is a community of sacred people who are doing sacred work in so many different ways. Um, so many who are in ministry, whether you have that title or not, I'm not looking, uh, but those who are engaged in a powerful ministries in their communities. There's wisdom all around us, and I'm just really appreciative of that. I'm also uh, thankful uh, because uh, last night, y'all know I had my timer um, to help to um, keep in check my, my Baptist inclinations, um, to just go for it. And I'm, I was so excited when I finished the sermon last night. I said it for 20 minutes. They told me 10 to 20 minutes. And in the, my tradition, uh, that's a devotional. That ain't no sermon. You, you, just, you ain't preached, Reverend. You just introduced yourself. Amen. But uh, I, I'm grateful that when I finished last night, I had two minutes and 30 seconds left uh, at the end of the sermon. And so I'm going to add that to tonight's message. <laughs> we'll, we'll see how it goes. We'll see, but I'm going to bring over the balance of my time. I'm reclaiming my time. Um, <laughs> um, I want to share tonight from um, the gospel uh, penned by Mark, chapter 6. I'm going to read verses 30 through 42. It's a story you may have heard before in the gospel of Mark. Chapter 6, verse 30 through 42. And it is so beautiful to be worshiping out here in this dynamic space tonight. Isn't it beautiful? March, Mark chapter 6. Mark 6, verse 30 through 42. The story you may have heard before. If not, it's a good one. Listen up. It says this. The apostles gathered around Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. He said to them, come away to a deserted place all by yourselves and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a deserted place by themselves. Now, many saw them going and recognized them, and they hurried there on foot from all the towns and arrived ahead of them. As he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, compassion for them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. When it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, this is a deserted place. And the hour is now very late. Send them away so that they may go into the surrounding country and villages and buy something for themselves to eat. But he answered them, you give them something to eat. They said to him, are we to go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, how many loaves have you? Go and see. When they had found out, they said, five and two fish. Then he ordered them to get all the people to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and of fifties. 
taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and blessed and broke the loaves and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all and all ate and were filled. This is the word of God. For the few moments that are mine, family, allow me to preach as you pray in the Lord in power from the theme, Redeeming Deserted Places. Redeeming Deserted Places. Friends, last year I learned of this interesting website and app. It's called Native Land. It's a site where you can put in your zip code or city and the interactive map will tell you about the area's ancestral indigenous history, the tribal connections there, and the people who once called that land their home. Chelsea Luger, member of the Turtle Mountain Band of Chippewa and Standing Rock Sioux Tribe, wrote in Yes Magazine, and I quote, you cannot find a corner of this continent that does not hold ancient history, indigenous value, and pre-colonial place names and stories. And every place we occupy was once the homeland for other people, most of whom did not leave willingly. The Native Land website is beyond helpful in the project of decolonization a posture which demands a centering of indigenous wisdom, indigenous ways of knowing, ways of being and understanding. Decolonization in our context helps us to be clear that just because it's in the West, it don't mean it's best. Uh. Just because it's white, it don't mean it's right. Uh. And just because it came from a man, it don't mean that's the plan. Yeah. I decided to test out the website native land. It was then that I learned more about the Lenape people who once lived here. I learned that the Lenape people are the original inhabitants of what we call Delaware, New Jersey, eastern Pennsylvania, and southern New York. They were and are the people with a matrilineal system of governance where powerful and grand mothers were the rulers of the clan and arbiters of society. Like so many of their kin, they were forcefully removed from their land and sent west, many to Oklahoma, leaving the land that they and their ancestors had been caretakers of for over 10,000 years. Whoa. They were not only caretakers of the land, but they were also caretakers of the waterways. They lived in relationship and cared for the river of human beings. I had never heard of a body of water called the river of human beings until I studied the Lenape people. Upon further investigation though, I learned that I hadn't heard of the river of human beings because somewhere within the 1700s, European colonists renamed this body of water the Delaware River. Whoa. After the first European governor of the province of Virginia, Thomas West Third Baron Delaware. It wasn't enough to remove the people from the land, but the project of colonization and dehumanization included changing the name of the place as well. I could find no record of Thomas Delaware even stepping foot here, 
But nevertheless, a body of water created by God goes from being called the river of human beings to a river honoring one European colonizer. It just goes to show that those who have the power often call things whatever they want to call them with little regard for other truths, historical accuracy, or the inherent value found in that place before other folks showed up. You stay with me, I'm going somewhere, I promise. Because in our text tonight, I find another place that suffers under the same weight of mischaracterization and a faulty description. In all my years of reading, hearing, and literally shouting about the miracle featured in today's text, I've never considered deeply the implications of the place where this miracle occurred. In fact, quick survey by show of hands, who's heard of this miracle story? Who's read it or heard it of Jesus taking two fish and five loaves and the miracle of 5,000 being fed? You've heard it before? I've long been encouraged to celebrate what happened there. Even now and I hear the parlance of black Baptist preachers in the memories of my mind describing Jesus as taking two sardines and five Ritz crackers and feeding a whole multitude. I've long been invited to focus with amazement on how Jesus, without the aid of Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat, or creative newsletters, attracted the attention of a massive crowd that was so large that they left town and beat him on foot where he was going by boat. But what occurs to me tonight is not just what happened, but where it happened. Three different times in this pericope, the Bible describes the sight, scene, and setting of this miraculous encounter as a deserted place. That's an interesting choice of adjective, deserted place. But the adjective would suggest something about this location. The adjective might imply that at some point this place used to be inhabited, this place used to hold life, But the choice of adjective seems to want us to believe that nothing of value could be found there now. This holds a particular resonance with me given that we are currently in a time of heightened gentrification, displacement, and dispossession. Deserted places abound these days. That's loaded and heavy language when you call some place a deserted place place. In fact, it's close cousin and kin to the labeling that happens to human beings as well. You've heard of at-risk youth. Instead of placing the weight where it belongs on the conditions in which the young people are raised up, conditions often brought about by racist and violent economic and political policies that are the victims of political violence, instead of naming the condition, instead we label the young person an at-risk youth. And let me just go ahead and tell the whole truth. You can get a whole lot of grant money these days if you can just show them that you're here to help the at-risk youth. And everybody knows in coded language who you're talking about. You're talking about black children and that labeling can be a prison and a shackle to people who never asked to be in in those bonds. Deserted place has a similar kind of weight to it. Deserted places abound in a society where we too easily write off certain places as unworthy, without value, and incapable of generating solutions that bubble up 
from within. Instead, there has a preference for solutions that are parachuted in from without. Yeah. And an example of this weight of our tendency of society to place violence upon a place is found right in the text that the conundrum in today's passage is that a massive crowd had followed Jesus to a deserted place. Yeah. Food is needed and the hour is getting late. The question of what to do arises. The disciples seeming to have a solution recommend that Jesus send the hungry masses into the towns to get food. When Jesus said, no, you feed them, the disciples said, we don't have no money. And here we get a glimpse of their mindset. Solutions are found in their mindset. Solutions are found in the city. Yeah. Solutions are found in the big metropolitan places. Solutions are found where the skyscrapers are. Yeah. Solutions are found where the subways run. Solutions are found where the foundations have their headquarters and dole out money to anybody who can write a little bit. Yeah. Solutions are not found in deserted places. Yeah. Solutions are found in the city and solutions are found in currency. Hear the disciples, hear them, they say, we don't got enough money to feed all these people. Solutions for them is found in having enough money, and once you get enough money, then you'll be able to transform conditions and solutions. But it does something deep down on the inside to me, Kendrick, yeah. because I grew up in a family who only had no money. Yeah. I come from Big Mama, Mama Geraldine, since we naming our Big Mamas and our family members. And my Mama Geraldine down in Kilmonic, Virginia, was famous for being able to take a little bit of nothing and create a feast out of it that would feed everybody in the house. Yeah. I looked in Mama Geraldine's refrigerator and saw almond hammer and bologna. She looked in that same refrigerator and saw a feast that would have everybody stuffed and sleep on the couch. They had a whole lot of money. But grandmama knew how to use what she already had to transform the conditions for everybody in the house. The disciples thought, if we don't have the money, we can't make a difference. And I got to put a quarter in the meter right here and put the car in park because there might be some under the sound of my voice who've also been tempted by the siren song of believing if you don't have enough money, you can't make a difference. If I could only get that grant, if, 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 if I could only get the attention of the investors in the big wigs in the city, if I, if I could only get the attention of the city council people and the governor, if, if I could only, if the media would only come and cover my community and, and my program, then I'll be able to make something work in my neighborhood. But what if, somebody say, what if? What, what, what if you already have what you need to do what God is calling you to do. Yeah. What if the divine solution to your dilemma is not found in a foundations grant? What if it's not found in getting resources from downtown? But what if you already have it in your hand? Yeah. The disciples came to Jesus. I got to leave my paper for a minute. I'm getting quite Baptist, but I got two minutes. Stay with me. The disciples came to Jesus and said, we don't have enough money. Did you hear what Jesus said in response? What do you have? Don't, don't come telling me what you don't have. 
Have you even done an assessment of the assets that are already in your hand? Before you go on the circuit begging people to help you do what you know God has called you to do, have you even taken a moment to take assessment and take stock of what God has already placed in your hand? That, that, that's, that's, that's what I'm learning and, uh, in helping black churches grow food on their own land through the ministry of the Black Church Food Security Network. Many of the congregations that I work with are found in places that some call food deserts. However, in Baltimore, we've moved beyond that term because of the wisdom that we've heard earlier and the wisdom shared by people like Karen Washington, co-founder of Black Urban Growers Bugs, who says, and I quote, what I would rather say instead of food desert is food apartheid. Because food apartheid looks at the whole food system along with race, geography, faith, and economics. You say food apartheid and you get to the root cause of some of the problems of the food system. It brings in hunger and poverty. It brings us to the more important questions, end quote. As we heard earlier today, we've also recognized that a desert is a naturally occurring geographic landscape. However, it's unnatural when political and corporate leaders strangle the life out of neighborhoods in part by keeping people separated from control and access to healthy food. So instead of scapegoating deserts, I'm saying amen to what was already spoken in this space. Instead of scapegoating deserts, which focus on access, in Baltimore, we now talk about food apartheid and we center our work in black food sovereignty. Our mindset changed. And once we started to see our communities, not as the deserted places that other people said they were, but as full of vibrancy and potential like we knew they were, God showed us where the life was all around us. We had people in Baltimore trying to figure out where to get land to grow food while there's 5011 black churches on every corner in the city that have land and kitchens and classrooms. Once we took stock of where the autonomy and the agency was in our community, it helped us to get a whole new mindset of how to change the conditions of our community. We recognize that we had life all around us. Well, you know how the Bible story ends. Jesus collects the fish and loaves that have been gathered and blesses it, and the masses are fed. But I want to end today shouting about a different aspect of the story. The Bible says that once the food had been collected and the miracle was about to be performed, verse 39 of the text, Jesus orders the people to sit down on the green grass. Yeah. <laughs> and that, that, that's where I got happy. I got happy right there. <laughs> Before the miracle with the fish, there was evidence of life in the foliage. Yeah. For if there was grass, then there were roots. Yeah. Come on. Come on, sir. And if there were roots, yeah. then there was soil. Yeah. If there was soil, there were microbes. If there were microbes, there was bacteria. If there was bacteria, there was mycelium. If there was mycelium, there was water. And if there was water, there was life. The disciples called this a deserted place. The biblical narrator called it a deserted place. 
Even Jesus called it a deserted place. But grass stands up to testify that life was here the whole time. And life did not start when y'all showed up. We were busy in the business of sustaining life long before you got here. So this might sound a little off. Maybe I was sitting in the heat too long. But when I sat out here earlier today doing our 45 minutes of silence and quiet and meditation, I started hearing sermons all around me. I was sitting right about there in the chair, honestly, about to check my phone. But before I could get to the phone, I was interrupted by the activity of the divine all around me that I had been overlooking because I was moving so fast. Once I slowed down, I began to look and study how God was active and is active all around us. I checked out the water gliders coming down on the water, doing a Holy Ghost two-step on top of the water before flying away to another space on the water. And I said, thank you, Lord. I checked out the Red Admiral Butterfly that is known to be friendly with human contact and was on your shoulder dancing four, five, six times, gliding all around us, naming its territory and its domain. I began to look at the, the, uh, the herons in the water and watching them. And some of y'all were checking them out. They were down there in the water working with a regal elegance. And in a moment's notice when it saw something that could nourish it, it would put its beak down in that mud, grab it, and keep on moving. Yes, sir. All that didn't shout me, though. God got to the climax of the sermon yes. when the carpenter ant started going around my feet. These black carpenter ants started racing around my toes. You may have caught two or three of them right here in this walkway. It made me go back and study these ants. And when I looked and studied the ants, I learned a thing or two about these ants. I learned that these ants are farmers. <laughs> they, they, they live in that tree right there. That's their address and their home place, their place of worship. And, and in that tree, they chew up the wood, not to eat it, but to create holes and passageways. And if we were to do an x-ray of the tree, we'd be able to see a complex system of holes where the ants live and have their life. I saw them carrying dead insects and scavenging all over the grass and taking food back to the house because Big Mama waiting inside. Yeah. <laughs> I saw those ants working along the waterways and figuring out how to get over breaks in the rocks so that they could get back to where they belong. I, and then I learned that, that these black carpenter ants are farmers. They, 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 they're farmers. They, they have aphids. And they work with the aphids in a mutual beneficial relationship because the, the aphids produce a sugary substance and the black carpenter ants likes the sugary substance. And so the ant takes care of the aphid and the aphid stays near the ant because the ant gets the sugary substance and the aphids get protection from the ants. And so they learn how to work together because they recognize that between each other, they got something to help one another. Yeah. They have, I read stories of the black carpenter ant 
taking the aphids' eggs down into the tree during the winter time, and then after winter, bringing those eggs back and placing them near the foliage so that they might get what they need to flourish. And while they're flourishing, the ants are flourishing too. Uh. You got ants farming right under your feet. And we think the farming area is when farming started on the land. What if life has been here the whole time? And we just catching up to a movie that's too late. Well, I'm getting the faces now. <laughs> it usually happens when I go this deep talking about animals. I've always been that kind of kid. But y'all got to forgive me. I may sound a little off. But the Bible I read testifies of a God who does not center divine activity through human activity alone. But the God that I serve and the Bible that I read testifies that God is in partnership with all of creation yeah, yeah. to testify to the glory of the divine. If I'm crazy talking about ants, then the Bible's crazy talking about rainbows, yeah. sending a message that God will never bring destruction the same way to the earth. If I'm crazy talking about ants, yeah. Then the Bible's crazy talking about birds bringing the prophet something to eat when the prophet Elijah was depressed and heavy in spirit. If I'm crazy, the Bible is crazy. Because the Bible testifies to birds bringing back foliage to Noah to let him know that it's time to drop anchor and walk again on dry land. If I'm crazy, then the Bible is crazy. When the moon refused to shine, when the birds refuse to sing. If I'm crazy, the Bible is crazy. When the dark sky testified to the death of Jesus, when the earth began to shake, when the rocks began to quake, if I'm crazy, the Bible is crazy because the Bible testifies that creation has its own divine relationship, that God will work and partner with the trees, with the leaves, with the grass, with the animals, and through it all, we bear witness to the greatness of our God. What if we are part of a great chorus of creation? Not the lead singers, but participants in a divinely orchestrated choir of the cosmos, testifying of the majesty of a God that don't even need humanity to hear echoes of God's divinity. What if we get too up uptight and dignified that we don't want to praise the Lord. But the Bible testifies that if you ever shut your mouth, the Bible says the very rocks will cry out and they'll testify to the goodness of, I feel Baptist, let me sit down. But I just got to say, if I'm crazy, the Bible is crazy. Because the Bible shows us that God will take places that we call deserted places and make it the site of divine intervention and miraculous discovery. Can I invite you? Keep your eyes open. Because God is at work all around us. Amen. 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 Amen.